week on the higher ed shift, Chris, Carlo, and I take a deeper look at the proposal to double the federal Pell Grant, a need-based aid program that has formed the foundation of federal aid since the mid-70s. National advocacy groups and colleges are instituting a full court press in September with the goal of encouraging Congress to double the maximum Pell Grant available to undergraduate students. The proposal would make the maximum grant just north of $13,000 per year, with a phased implementation being completed in the 27-28 aid year. In theory, this seemingly simple solution could greatly increase access to college for low-income students. However, the discussion about governance or accountability measures to ensure that good intentions are matched with good outcomes will be key. Join us in our discussion now. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Higher Ed Shift. I am Amy Glenn and have with me today Carlos Salerno, who is an economist and VP of research at Campus Logic, and Chris Chumley, a higher education technology and operations professional and COO and president at Campus Logic. Thanks for joining me, guys. Hey, how's everybody doing? Good to be here. Good. So today we wanted to tackle a topic that's been gaining traction for months, maybe even years. And it's the recommendation to double the federal Pell Grant. Uh, The Pell Grant program came into existence in 1972, reauthorization of the Higher Education Act. And at the time, it was called the Basic Education Opportunity Grant. As a little bit of a level set in the 76-77 aid year, students received a maximum grant of $1,400. At the time, the award covered 72% of the cost of attendance at a four-year public college. Fast forward to present day, and the maximum Pell Grant has increased to $6,495 and would cover less than a third of the cost of attendance at the same four-year public college. Since inception, Pell has served as a foundation of the national need-based aid programs to support low- and moderate-income students. Advocate groups are in full swing lobbying for an increased appropriations and doubling of the current Pell Grant. So with the with increased fears about shrinking college enrollment and the link to affordability that we have seen amplified with the onset of COVID, we wanted to discuss the advantages and possible risks that could come with such an initiative. So let's kind of dig into this idea of of doubling the Pell Grant and some of the reasons that both college partners and advocacy groups support this approach in leveling the playing field in college affordability. Who's going to go first? I'll defer to Carlo this time. You know, I started thinking that I was going to get to play bad cop again. <laughs> There's no such thing as bad cop in this relationship. <laughs> That's so true. But to your point, Pell has lost a lot of its purchasing power over the last 40 years. Uh, you can't um, expect people to maintain the college is affordable, but only give them a quarter of the dollars that you did 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, we know from research that uh, students who do get grant aid are more likely to persist. Uh, they're more likely to graduate. So we know it works. We know that giving students dollars in the situation um, has a material benefit. We know that it's played 
a critical role in getting millions of students to college and through college over the past 40 years. So is it a critical program? Of course it is, right? Mm -hmm. It's the foundation of this concept that uh, the public gets a social benefit from having a more educated class of people. And so it should be partially subsidizing that for people who need it most. And that feels like good logic. And so I think for anybody who looks at the span of the Pell Grant program from its inception in 1972 to today, we could talk about its problems, but on balance, it's probably been one of the greatest social movers uh, in, in terms of federal policy uh, that's that's happened, at least in our lifetimes. It's a, it's a great investment for the future, future of the con- country, I think. And the connection that I make is that we're our our industry higher education has come under a lot of fire uh, because of equity accessibility to all students and Pell is a great equalizer. It also I think could be a way to uh, we we know we know we have students who aren't enrolling because they're they are not sure about the value proposition of higher ed mm-hmm. and they don't want to go into debt for it. There's a lot of debt aversion in in Gen Z. And so covering more with Pell for those lower income students, I think helps balance the equation and could help with some of the enrollment challenges that the industry is having right now. We know we're enrolling fewer students. We know, uh, at least looking at this year's data, we're retaining fewer students than we have in the past. And I think the Pell Grant doubling uh, or growing even more than double could help offset those challenges um, and keep more students in school, credentialize more people, which ultimately would be better for our nation's economy and our nation's society. So why, on the surface, why wouldn't we want to invest more in the future of America through the Pell Grant? And Chris, to your point about the enrollment challenges and in particular how enrollment declines are hitting low-income, first-generation, just high-risk students in general. So the fall 2020 enrollment rates for low-income students fell by 10.7% compared to just 4.6% for graduates from high-income high schools. And I don't mean to say just 4.6%, but we quite literally saw the decline double as we moved into students from from lower-income high schools and and socioeconomic backgrounds. And so wondering how, how differently we would have seen a situation like like we've felt and dealt with in the last year in COVID impact our, our low-income students if the Pell Grant actually covered a much higher percentage of the direct costs that students incur. Yeah. And as an operations person, I look at it and think of, of all the different proposals that we've seen the last few years about how to make college more affordable. Pell is in place. We have a process in, pre- in place. We have business processes. Um, we 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 know how to we know how admi- how to administer Pell, and we we as a as an industry administer Pell pretty well. So by putting those resources there, 
to me, it's more cost effective from an implementation standpoint than, than many of the other proposals around free college or, or other instruments. Um, this is in place. It works well. It's a channel we can put more funds into and efficiently get the money uh, to, the, to the students who need it most. You know, one of the other benefits of Pell is it's widely known. We know about the Pell Grant program. Um, there are state grants and there are private scholarships, but more people know about the Pell Grant program as a college affordability mechanism. Uh, it's drummed into our heads. Uh, it's drummed into college and high school counselors' heads. Uh, it's one of the few grants that gets uh, public exposure every year when we set maximum limits on it or annual, you know, annual or lifetime amounts, it's something that people can rely on when they plan. Because if you're low income or if you're really low income, chances are, even without going through any fancy methodology, you probably know if you're going to be a Max Pell student. And probably your high school counselor knows as well, too. And so you can budget with it, right? You can use Pell uh, not only to make college more affordable, but you can shop with it. You're not finding out after the fact you know, that you you know you've 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 gotten accepted to a college, you've received an aid notification letter, and only then are you figuring out what kind of grants you're going to get. Pell is one of those things that it doesn't matter where in the cycle you apply for. If you're eligible for it, you're going to get it. So you can importantly shop with a Pell grant, which makes it very different as an affordability mechanism when you compare it to all the other forms of grant aid that are out, especially these last dollar programs that seem to kind of like pull the rug out from under you sometimes in July or early August when you think you're going to get another scholarship and you find out suddenly, oh, I have a last dollar program, which means some of the money that I thought I had earned is going to actually get taken back from me. So Pell, Pell serves another purpose for low-income students, a very important one, in that it helps them actually budget and plan for something rather than just react to it. No, I think I think that's that's absolutely correct. And when you think about the tools that every college has to help students measure affordability of their institution, it, the net price calculator is the primary and most forward-facing tool that we have. And one of its main purposes is to estimate the Pell dollars that a student will receive. Because of the transparency and the straightforwardness of the formula, it can be eye-opening for a student to understand that there is need-based aid out there to help offset the cost of college and help them to really chart that personal financial path that they have towards, towards access of higher education. And so you can have that early component with net price calculator interaction, but also as a student completes the FAFSA, they they get an output of what their estimated expected family contribution is and what the estimate of federal aid that they're eligible for even before it's been fully processed. And so there's, there's just this greater level of transparency. And I do think this shift towards need-based aid is not only important for us as a federal resource, but institutionally, the shift away from merit-based aid and discounting to a true need-based aid system at our colleges and universities is an important step forward in creating access and equitability in higher education. So when we when we think like all of those things are great, there's all these amazing reasons to double the Pell, to increase access, but as we're doing it, 
this is a lot of money. We're talking, I don't know, Carlo, how, how many dollars are awarded in Pell on an annual basis? You know, 30 billion, give or take. Give or take a, give or take a buck. So if we're going to double it, do, do we assume that that means that as a nation, we're going to look at an expenditure of about 60 billion a year in, in awarding of grant aid to, to go to college. And so as we think about this, what are some of the risks or the notes of caution that we should really have in figuring out how to appropriate those funds, what new oversight comes with doubling that expenditure, what kind of skepticism maybe is out there from people when we talk about doubling PAL? So uh, there's a lot of questions there, Amy, which is why I always love talking to Amy. She always gives me a list. Um, you can answer whatever you want. And then I can just pick whichever one I want. Which answer. one do you like? There's six so, questions there. A couple of initial thoughts, and then I'll let Carlo chime in too, is one is, yes, we have, we have to figure out how to pay for it. It's no small number to pay for it. But I think we could do the accounting. And when you think about the reduction potentially in the amount of student debt the students take, there are costs to administer student debt, to service debt, costs of default, cost of deferment. We have income-based repayment programs now where we don't even get all of it back. That's where doubling Pell to me seems like we would gain efficiencies that could actually offset some of the costs. And then, and these are the harder costs or the harder benefits that I would look to, to uh, my educational economist friend to help us think through. But when you think about if doubling Pell brings more students into the pipeline and we have more credentialed students, the impact to the economy, the benefits that we get from that as a society through increased tax revenues, again, could offset some of those costs. So we don't always think about where we would save on other things. It's another reason why, like I said in the beginning, I'm, I really like the idea of using the Pell program because the Pell program already has standards in place. It already has oversight in place. That, that makes it a really good mechanism for doing this. We have processes for verifying the student's income, making sure that the money's getting to the right place that make it a really good approach, I think. But how do we pay for it, Carlo? That's the question, right? Um, because if you think about this, you know, if doubling Pell was such a great idea, giving more people access to more grant money was such a great idea and it would have all of these benefits. The logical question is why haven't we? Why is every single year that people propose an increase in the Pell Grant is this met with such resistance? Why is it not obvious whenever people propose to increase Pell by even $1,000 or $2,000, why is it not embraced? Why is it always met with skepticism? That's one angle to the to paying thing, to the paying issue is. Well, but what's the answer? Why is it? You, I ask the questions, you give the answers. I'm sorry. Well, we, it's have, very, we have our, it's, we have our roles confused here. <laughs> if it was that simple, we could answer that question in a podcast. We wouldn't be doing podcasts. <laughs> um, we would, but, but the, we might have a lot more listeners. <laughs> we probably would have more listeners. I think 
answer is political will. And I think that gets into some of the bigger problems. The answer to your question lies in the problem of the Pell Grant system to begin with. For example, uh, one, a lot of people who get Pell Grants don't graduate. I've done some of the numbers. I've looked at some of the cohorts years ago. I looked at some of the analysis. And roughly 24 to 27% of any cohort of Pell recipients doesn't end up leaving college with So almost a quarter of the Pell Grant funding that's allocated to anybody in any given year doesn't end up leading to graduates. They they get educations off of it, but we're we're spending money on people who are not getting degrees. And so there is a challenge there. And I think there's a challenge from a policymaker standpoint that says, hey, we would love to give money if we knew what we were getting in return for it. But we don't always know what we get in return for it. And if we look at the statistics that we have, Pell students are low-income students that come from, they have at-risk backgrounds, they come from under-resourced secondary schools, and they struggle to graduate and they struggle to get through circumstances. But how does that that compare to non-Pell recipients? So you're saying about a quarter of Pell recipients are non-completers. Correct. How does that compare to non-Pell recipients, or is it kind of the same? That is a good question that I don't have the answer to because I was only looking at Pell recipients. <laughs> the data. Okay. Selection uh, bias. So it, it's less selection bias, I think, but it is more <laughs> this idea that I was interested in trying to understand, like, if we're going to give money to somebody, what kind of return on investment are we getting? And surprisingly, we don't know this. I don't know if any of if, if, if anybody here remembers, but even several years ago, there was suddenly this big push by policy wonks who were saying, hey, we don't know how many people who have Pell Grants graduate. Why don't we know this basic information? Why is the Department of Education not reporting this information uh, on a portfolio that, or, or again, on a, on a budget that gives out roughly $30 billion a year in free money? And so- there's an efficiency argument here that I think some people look at this and say, well, we're giving a lot of money, but what are we getting in return, right? We don't, we're not really sure. So, Chris, as, as you were talking about this really optimistic and idealistic view that doubling the Pell Grant was going to have a trickle-down effect and was going to actually reduce student debt, in theory, if we were locking the cost of education and we were going to require institutions to continue to invest in scholarships and discounting at the same rate as they do today, I think that that could be true. But one of my concerns is we've seen an ever-increasing desire to play a bit of a shell game with sticker price and aid And so a really prevalent example that happens today is in our scholarshiping process where students get an an offer package or an, an offer or a package of aid from the institution. The student goes out, gets an external scholarship, brings it back to the college, and the college does some adjustments to reduce their institutional scholarships and replace it with the external, keeping the student at a net zero gain. And I worry a little bit about how do we control for that? And one, either have colleges not just jack tuition fees, room and board through the roof even more and keep their net cost kind of at the the student's net cost at the same component, 
or how do we ensure that they continue to apply kind of the same 49% average discounting rate that we see at private institutions as it applies to tuition? That I, I'm a little skeptical that we're going to actually apply the Pell Grant to cost and not see massive inflation or yeah. jockeying with the numbers. Well, we've there's some data, or probably more than some data, but there's data that shows that happening, even from those numbers you shared at the beginning of what what has the Pell Grant covered mm-hmm. since 1975. It's a lot less. And so there is, I think, a strong argument that if you subsidize more of the cost, then the cost will just go up. And so I do think that the only way this works is there has to be some counterbalancing cost controls. And nobody likes to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody wants to have cost controls imposed on them. But I think when we're talking about public monies that are being dispersed as a subsidy, there has to be some stewardship. There has to be some controls on the cost side so that that game won't happen. And you're right. We see, we see scholarship displacement all the time, aid displacement from, from scholarships all the time. And I tend to believe that it, it, it's not nefarious. It's, it's schools trying to stretch need-based dollars mm-hmm. further. And so they're, they're saying this student got a scholarship. And so now I can take some of the money I was going to give that student because they had need. They now have a little less need. Now I can give it to a needier student. I actually wonder, and I, and I know I do tend to be idealistic here. I actually wonder that if a federal program like Pell were increased, that that, that would lessen the pressure that schools felt to displace private scholarship. Like, I wonder if there wouldn't be a virtuous effect on private scholarship by the Pell being increased. Mm, I think you're being too kind because we, we have, well, usually, <laughs> I mean, you haven't made me cry in weeks. It's months. been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> I am an emotional person, everybody. It's not really him making me cry. <laughs> um, but we, we have seen historically, and Carlo, I'm hoping you can help me remember, we have he- seen historically some pretty I don't want to say significant because people will argue that the bumps that we've seen in Pell and appropriations hasn't wasn't significant enough. But during the Obama administration, I believe there was an additional appropriation that caused kind of a, a more significant increase in the maximum Pell award. Is is that true? So so there was at the time. And and again, for context, this is the Great Recession. This is 2000, you know, the the recession starts in 2008, and I think it was around 2010 that we see this massive boost. uh, And again, it was designed to help get our struggling economy back on its feet, because much like today with COVID, what we saw is a bunch of people who should have been opting into the school market uh, because they didn't have employment opportunities, right? This is what happens. Um, when when job markets tank, people go back to college to retrain, and it didn't happen. And so they were trying to boost that. So it worked, but like but like both you and Chris have said, uh, without some kind of effective control, it, it just easily gets diluted. There's nothing a thousand dollar boost in grants. There's nothing to stop a school from simultaneously raising the cost of attendance by a thousand dollars and fully absorbing that cost. And nobody wins. I'll, I, I tell everybody all the time on Twitter. 
that at, at the end of the day, every dollar of Pell Grant money ends up in a school's pocket. It goes to the student first, but at the end of the day, it goes to a school. A student ends up giving that money to the school. Well, it actually goes directly to the school. Right. But in principle, the Pell gets assigned by the student or gets students. So stop putting me under this kind of pressure. Yeah, It used to be there were stipend <laughs> checks that came from the excess though. Right, Amy? Right. Back in the day. For your, for your funding. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But the principle, right. Is that, is that Amy decides to go to college. Amy gets a Pell award. Amy's money from her Pell is going to go into an institution's pocket. It's not paying Amy. So the, the school is the ultimate beneficiary of Pell dollars. And so Again, like I've said before, right? If if you want to if you want to make Pell valuable, you, you don't pour water into a colander. <laughs> if it's a if there's a whole bunch of holes in it, the water just seeps on out. If you want to make the water have some mass and and some value, you have to plug all those holes. And if you you don't put controls in place uh, to prevent colleges from just offsetting uh, a grant with more uh, with a higher cost, you're not achieving anything at the end of the day. You're just simply letting uh, some pocket of students um, who happen to be going to college right at the time that a, a Pell Grant boost happened uh, to benefit. And, and in five, seven, 10 years time, you run into the exact same problem again. And that's not how policy is supposed to be. So I've heard you talk a little bit about some potential controls that could be used. Uh, can you talk just really quickly about maybe one control idea that that you've had on on how we could try and counterbalance some of this risk? Yeah, sure. I think one obvious thing would be for the government to say to schools, uh, in return for accepting Pell money, you have to keep Pell students tuition uh, either flat or indexed to inflation. You're not allowed to boost it. I mean, that's that's the fastest, easiest way to mm-hmm. ensure that the purchasing power of Pell stays preserved. And then it, it guarantees then that the school still gets its money, the students still get some value out of it, uh, and the government has some kind of check on the system. But outside of that, to Chris's point earlier, there's there's really nothing, like we've been trying to put federal price controls in place for years or figure out a way to do it. And you can't because at the end of the day, education is not uh, emblazoned in the Constitution. There is no federal education infrastructure. Education is a state's right. And so we have a patchwork of states that manage all that, including the financing. So it's really hard to it's really hard to do. But that's a good first step would be for the federal government to just say, listen, we'll give you money, but in return you have to give us a little fiscal responsibility. I like it. Well, I mean, I when I I like it, I like the fact that you answered and gave an idea. It wasn't an endorsement of the idea, just to be really clear for all of our listeners. <laughs> Hey, I don't just tear things down, Amy. I like to build once in a while. Like 30% of the time. Hey, really, really fast though. One last thing that I think is worthwhile for the reader or for the readers, for the listeners to, to hear is, you know, doubling Pell essentially is trying to make Pell cover things other than tuition fees, right? It's making it cover living costs as well. And that's that's a big component of affordability. And that's a big component of the, the broader discussion is should Pell be there to fund living expenses and, and food and dorms and residence halls when there are already other federal programs that are designed to help people cover the cost of food and the cost of living if, they, if, if they're under some federal needs-based, right? So I think there's a bigger issue here about what Pell should cover uh, that also gets caught up in this mix of like what doubling Pell would do. Mm-hmm. 
I think that is absolutely a great conversation for another day is a discussion about the, the development of cost of attendance budgets at colleges and universities, the differentiation between direct and indirect cost, and really what needs to be covered. Do students need to have financial aid up to a total estimated cost of attendance to make college affordable is a 30 minute conversation, if not more, all in itself. All in its own. I've got a lot of opinions on that one. (laughs) One thing, one thing this group is not short on is opinions and strong opinions. As we've walked through this path, really the conversation to sum it up has, has focused on the fact that regardless of how it happened, the purchasing power of the Pell Grant that we have in effect today is significantly less than it was at inception in 1976 as students were receiving. And as we look at the shifting demographics in our student population, the increase in non-traditional students, in first-generation and in low-income students, we really need to do more to reduce financial barriers to being able to afford and access higher education. And that means that we need to take a pretty close look at our federal system, our state system, our institutional system to ensure that students have a clear path to unlock every dollar to be able to, to access higher education and ensure that they have a financial path to completion. We do know that students are gonna drop out of college for, for other reasons, but really being able to eliminate the financial friction that stops students from completing their college degree, these, these federal dollars, these Pell Grants, and the idea of doubling it could take huge strides in helping achieve that goal if implemented thoughtfully and properly to ensure that we're actually increasing the buying power of students for a long term. I want to thank Chris and Carlo for for joining me, being able and willing to talk about both the advantages and the risks. We thank you for listening today. Encourage you to subscribe to get updates about future sessions. Follow along on Twitter and LinkedIn. And as always, if you're interested in being a future guest on this podcast, we ask you to drop us an email at studentfinancialsuccess at CampusLogic. Let us know what you're interested in talking about, and we will be in touch soon.